All right, everyone. Thanks so much for stopping by another live episode of Real Estate Titans, sponsored by Lionbolt Media. I'm your host, Greg Fowler, traveling throughout the marketplace, interviewing the top professionals in our field, essentially gathering insight, inspiration, really drives and motivates these top producers above and beyond everybody else in what I'd like to consider a real estate titan. Now, our very special guest and feature time for episode 276, all the way from Costa Mesa, California, none other than my good friend, Ben Brady. Ben, it's an absolute honor and a thrill and a pleasure to have you on Titans today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Greg. It's great to be here. Oh, this is incredible. And, and to me, Ben, I've been very fortunate in my life to have a couple conversations in nature, and I'm always blown away anytime we get to engage with one another. And uh, like I said, it's an honor to bring you to the Titan Nation for everyone else on this side of the equation to really get to know you as a man, a professional. So uh, without further ado, Ben, let's go down the road of the first question, and it ends up being the origin story. Who is Ben Brady? Where does he come from? What got him into the business? All the way up until where you are today, which is incredible. So let's start there if you're all right with that. It's kind of a deep question. Who is Ben Brady? <laughs> like, are we just talking real estate basis or are we talking about, you know, in general, you know, have I discovered myself? All of those weird questions that you can ask. You know, I love all the weird questions, Ben. You go wherever you want to go. I'm just here. I, I've got my seatbelt on. I'm ready for a wild ride. So hit, hit me wherever you want to hit me. It's been an interesting. It's been an interesting journey so far, and I say interesting based on the fact that I think that if it's not interesting, you're doing something wrong. Um, and and the reality is, is that you know, as people can probably tell, is that oh, there's a there's a funny twang to my accent, and uh, you know, it's not from Texas or Boston or whatever you, people say to me all the time. Um, it's, uh, it's Australian. So do people yeah. really confuse that with an East Coast or or a Texas accent? What's wrong with people? Ben? No, no, no. So so it's obviously. It's. It must be a joke. I don't. A movie that I haven't seen. It must be something from an era that maybe I'm not from. But so many people go like all the time as a jovial sort of joke is that, oh, you must be from Texas. And I'm like, I'm like, where does that come from? And no one has ever responded. So maybe somebody can obviously ping you and tell you where it actually comes from. But but uh, I've been called several things: South African. You know, we get a lot of oh, you're English. Um, no, there's. <laughs> There's some people like, oh, what part of Europe are you from? And sort of like, you kind of actually tell the people that have never actually interacted with an Australian before. So there'll be an element of your audience also, even though I've been in the States for 10 years, mm -hmm. where I can drastically tell Greg when somebody does not have a clue what I've just said. They sort of do like the head tilt, sort of, <laughs> oh, okay. And like, there's this blank look. So... In advance, one of the things that I say to most people when I'm meeting them for the first time is that, yes, I have a funny Australian accent. If you need me to repeat myself, more than happy to do so. Oh, my gosh. I love that. And I will tell you, Ben, who, who if it is a joke on any nature, I don't quite understand their humor. Too dry for me. I, I think it's in nature. It's so funny to me because there's so many incredible accents from all over the world. And I'm actually a huge fan of all different, you know, variations of that. And I, I'm always inquisitive in nature um, to, to understand where people are coming from. And uh, I think if you don't know, throwing the joke out, I don't really know if that's the way to go about it. But I would say the golden voice, my friend. I, I, I love it. I love the voice. And uh, again, just this is incredible stuff. So, so Ben, what is your journey into life that way, I suppose? You said 10 years ago, coming to the States, what was it like growing up in Australia? And, and what was kind of your progression, you know, to, to bring you here to doing what you're doing at the level you do it at? 
you know, it feels it feels interesting to tell the story because, you know, you don't usually reflect too much on it. But, you know, I just a, a normal kid, normal area, the area that I sort of grew up in, um, to those that are listening that have know Australia well, is the western suburbs of Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. So it's wow. more to the northern end of it on the east coast of Australia. So directly facing basically California. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I guess that it was interesting, had no aspirations of of real estate whatsoever sort of fell into it. Uh, struggled through school. Um, I'm dyslexic. I uh, have a have a very like if I get tired, like the rethink real estate sign in the back here, or or any of the words that I see on the screen, they can just be jumbled. Um, but didn't 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 really um, you know excel in school. Uh, mm-hmm. But but that said, still gave it my best try. Uh, I got to the point where you know I was I was younger. I got a job in a surf clothing company called City Beach, which was a sort of a local phenomenon, local chain. And that sort of was my first sort of step into the sales side of the business, like being applauded for selling more than your other, the, the other people that you worked with. Like that was four, I was about 14. Hmm. So, so 14 and a half is when you can get a job in Australia. Oh. Um, and it's, and it's very normal. Like it's like a summer job, so to speak, that kids have here. It's very, very normal at 14 and six months, or I think it might be nine months, I think somewhere along those lines, but, but, uh, most kids will go and get a job and and I didn't want to do McDonald's. I didn't want to do any of these other places. I wanted something that was a little bit different. Um, and I saw City Beach is cool. Um, and I went in there and and sort of really at the very beginning of it sort of got a pretty clear understanding that, you know, being able to upsell people and a little bit of the training and all of that. Now, that said, with inside that first 12 months of me being at City Beach, I actually had an interaction one afternoon um, after school. Uh, my uh, in high school my high school was right near the local shopping center that all the kids would go to after school and you know you know play around and on your skateboards and scooters and all this type of stuff and my one of my friend had a had a job he was the shopping cart guy um you know to collect all the shopping carts and I distracted him we were, we were playing around I was pushing carts around at him and all of this type of stuff and he'd let one of them go and we hadn't been paying attention and bang hits into the side of this white BMW Five Series BMW, I still remember. No. Now, the gentleman who hopped out of that car was actually, his name is Bill Cooper. Bill um, owned the local real estate company, the Harcourts, believe it or not, Harcourts Real Estate um, uh, in uh, in Forest Lake. And he got out and his face was red. He was basically foaming at the mouth. <laughs> yeah. um, but my friend, you know, I grew up with a dad that was pretty boisterous, um, my father, he wasn't backwards in coming forwards. My dad certainly told us if he was not happy. And and people yelling, it's it's funny when people with conflict sometimes, most of the time, shy away from it. Probably one of the reasons that I've been okay at real estate my entire life is that I'm happy to lean into the discomfort comfort of a conversation mm. um, and sort of understand it a little bit more. And my friend who was the shopping cart guy, he uh, he literally basically wanted to turn and run. Whereas I went over, I said, hey, look, I'm really sorry. That was my fault. I distracted him. He let the shopping cart go and hit the side of it. I don't know really what to do now, but I just wanted to say I'm sorry. That was our fault. And and he looked at me and he goes, why don't you come and send me for a job? Literally the first thing that came out of his mouth. Um, I was a bit startled. I'm like, okay. He handed me a business card. Anyway, I didn't action, I didn't do anything towards it. Um, but uh, but then my mum said to me, actually, she's like, why don't you go and see him about real estate? It could be a good job for you in the future and whatever it is. I had intention of going to university, even though I didn't like school. Okay. Um, but uh, but realistically, I went and saw him for a job about two weeks later. 
I walked into the office. Luckily enough, he was there at the time. They owned three offices, Browns Plains, Forest Lake and Centenary. Um, and, uh, and, and he said, yeah, we're looking for a, a personal assistant. Um, you know, myself and my business partner, Mel Rodrigo, um, basically you'd come in after school, you would, you know, uh, just anything, um, anything that they wanted to do, go put up signs, all this type of stuff. So I did that. Um, it was, it was a, I had it as a second job for a while, sort of after school, cause only getting one or two shifts a week at, um, city beach and, and, you know, I did that all the way through me turning 18 or leaving school at, um, just before I was 18. And it was interesting. It progressed to the point where I got so comfortable in that environment that I know this is illegal, no question, but I was doing open houses for Bill and Mel on the weekend of their listings because they were still selling principles. Um, in Australia, it's not very common for the business owner who actually sell real estate, but they still were because they had quite a legacy in many areas. And I was... I was doing open houses, registering people's information at the front door of the open house and, and you know, and and sort of running those. And then Bill would also make me do the follow-up to those people on the Monday afternoon when I would come in from school and sort of really just understood it. It was one of the first things that I'd, outside of sports and activities, um, it was one of the first things I sort of would just like click. I really understand how all of this works is that, you know, you've got to meet people, get them through the home, follow them up, you know, see whether or not it's, and and part of this process in Australia, one of the benefits that I have of, of growing up in the Australian real estate side of things is there's no buy side, okay? Mm. You can only ever list property in order to make money. Mm. Um, so ultimately, I always, I, from the very beginning of all of this, it was the listing element of the business that really took a fancy. And, and anyway, long story short is that I came to the decision of me graduating from high school and, you know, going to university or doing real estate and, you know, it was it was an interesting decision. Uh, you know, I still remember, I can't remember who exactly, it might've been my grandfather, my papa, as I call him, mm -hmm. um, who said to me, he's like, well, why go put yourself into debt versus go and make money? Mm -hmm. And you know, you've got to appreciate the era that that comes from in the sense of that, um, uh, that you know, university wasn't a really big thing. I say university because that's what we call it in Australia, not sure. college or anything along those lines. But mm -hmm. uh, it was, it, and, and college in Australia is paid for by the government. Don't get me wrong; they end up clawing it back out of your tax money in a larger extent. But sure. but 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 uh, but it is paid for. There's no student loans or anything along those lines. So it's basically a free ride. Mm -hmm. And I, I did, I just didn't. It just got straight into real estate, mm -hmm. and. I was the youngest person to ever be licensed through Harcourt's licensing school. What they did is I did the course as soon as I graduated. I was still 17 and a half and you've got to be 18 in order to get your real estate license. I did the course and they predated the paperwork in order for when I turned 18 that I could get my real estate license. And, you know, people listening from the US might be like, wow, that's young. It's not really in Australia. If you go and have a look at the average age of the Australian realtor, at probably around you know thirty years of age. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it is a very young industry. People forego um, going to college to go into real estate because you know the average income of an agent in Australia and New Zealand is you know I'd say fifty times that of what the US average is. Um, you know, it's a very highly competitive industry, and and that's one of the things that that I've, I'm very grateful in my journey to the US. I'm very grateful I'm out of it because it's a very toxic side of the business as well. Um, but that said, is that uh, is that it, I, I certainly am grateful for that dog eat dog world that I came up in in the real estate space. But as soon as I turned eighteen, got my license, and the first year of real estate that we did um, collectively with Bill and Mel, we did a little over a million dollars of GCI with a volume of deals. Wow. Um, you know, it was our average sale price was uh, was two hundred and thirty or two hundred between two hundred and thirty two hundred and seventy. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we were in a very undesirable area. Um, is that uh, it was basically we were it was this new estate being Forest Lake um, that had one of the highest turnovers, which really helped our volume of business. It had one of the highest turnovers in all of Southeast Queensland, 
But the reason it had a high turnover is because it was surrounded by Section 8 housing, or as okay. we call it, housing commission. So mm-hmm. all of the Section 8 people, with all due respect to everybody in that, that way of life, they were coming and stealing from the Forest Lake people. Unreal. So, yeah, so it was a pretty high crime area. Not dangerous in any way, but it was just one of those things that, uh, that it, wasn't, it wasn't something that people would stay there very often. Mm. But, but realistically is that it gave, us an opportunity, gave me an opportunity to get a really good cadence in real estate. High transaction, high volume, but then obviously the other part of it as well that it really taught me was, you know, one of the things that I got taught very early on from Bill in, again, this is probably a little bit from the legal perspective, not right, but when we would when we would do an auction, because auction is the way to sell real estate there, Bill and Mo were very auction centric. Now that not is not as it's not distressed auction, anything along those lines. When you go and do a listing presentation in Australia, you go and you present, hey, I can traditionally list your home with a price on it. This is where we think your property sits, or we can do auction. Mm. Um, and auction is a way to stimulate the marketplace and possibly get you more than what you want and really find out what your property is worth in today's marketplace. Because I've got a very firm opinion, Greg. Like this is one of the things I'm very grateful for along my journey. If there was one thing, if I'd made this distinct element to my success, mm. I got taught two things in my early days of real estate your opinion of value doesn't matter unless you're willing to stroke a check for that property wow powerful and that is how that is how everyone in australian real estate is brought through is mm-hmm. that i don't give a shit what the comps say realistically is that it doesn't matter a particular time a particular person at a particular time for a particular property and those particular circumstances led to that particular result and that most of the time cannot be duplicated mm-hmm. okay and if it is it means you've undersold the property Right. So so it was one of the things that I, I I I really struggled with coming to North America in the first degree of this is that mm-hmm. people have had the had the arrogance to believe that their opinion of value mattered when it doesn't, because they're not willing to write a check. And 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 that was one of the things that really taught me an amazing lesson. And that's why auction was so powerful in the first days of of, of me doing real estate. But the second element that was really, really powerful for me is that when, so Bill, who would manage the the offices mm-hmm. and manage the sale process, if we had an offer on one of our auctions or on one of our properties, we would have to go to him as the manager and go, this is the offer, this is what the sellers want. And he would strategize with us on how to go present it to the sellers and how to negotiate with the buyer and all of that type of stuff. But there was one distinct thing that he did that I thought was just incredible in the first degree. Don't get me wrong. I was I hated it when I was in there, but it it is it created a monster in the perspective of the way that I operated. Is wow. that he he you'd give him the offer, he'd go through it. First question isn't can you get it accepted or anything. It's like where's your other where's your where's your listing agreement? Hmm. You'd hand him the file and go, "There's my listing agreement." He says, "Not for this property, for your next one. You are not allowed to sell this property until you have your next listing." Wow. And he would literally take the offer, put it in his top drawer and lock it. Mm. Now, again, not exactly above board from a legal perspective. <laughs> <laughs> right. but, but that said is that what it did, and I, how many times do you think I went to Bill with an offer? Because everything had to go through him. Otherwise, he would fire you. He would remove you from the business. Oh, wow. Right. Okay. Is that is that how many times do you think it took me to go to him to go, oh, this is going to be a pattern every single time that I go to you with an offer? So I would legitimately get an offer and my job would be, all right, hit the phones, door knock, whatever I need to do, call the open house people, whatever I need to do in order to find my next listing, okay? In some cases, I would bank listings before I'd have listings in order to make sure that make sure that I had something to take bill. Um, there was one time 
Well, there was one time that I, uh, I, uh, we, we were having an auction. It got to auction day uh-huh. and he turned up. He turned up at auction day and I hadn't run anything past him. I didn't do the normal reserve set meeting. I, it'd take too long to explain all this stuff, all sure. the terminology. But he turned up at my auction, stood out the front of the house and goes, well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to today's auction. I just wanted to let you know that we're postponing it two weeks today. Okay. Um, so folks, if you are interested in today, see Ben Brady. He's the listing agent on the property. But thank you so much for coming. Really appreciate it. Gets in his car and drives away. The sellers are inside livid with me. Like, yeah. what do you mean we're postponing the auction? And then when I called him, I'm like, Bill, what is going on here? He's like, Ben, where's your next listing? <laughs> oh, I love it. And it this. was just, it was, it was so invaluable. Um, and another lesson that he taught us, and I thought it was, I thought it was really great. And this comes stems to this early days of learning. Hmm. He there was a coffee club right beside our office in Forest Lake. Um, and Bill never, ever, ever, he was very tight-fisted. Um, in perspective to the way that he held his money. Sure. Um, Bill never, ever just like bought us a coffee. He'd never say, hey, come and meet me for a coffee or whatever. So mm-hmm. we were in the office meeting one day and he goes, all right, let's all go have a coffee. And there was, so in Australia, there's not 400 agents or 30 agents in an office. We had 10 of us. That's just usually the office size mm-hmm. um, because everyone does perform pretty well. You know, our average income in our office at that point was about $800,000 in GCI a year. Um, and and if you and then um, we went to the coffee shop, and it was funny because keep in mind in Australia, if you don't have a listing, you can't make any money, right? Mm-hmm. And he'd gone to the coffee shop owner and he'd said to him, "Hey, when you come out, and people start ordering coffee orders, start telling them that you don't have any coffee." I just want to do an exercise, and and the coffee owner obviously said yes. Yeah. So we all go out, and he's sitting at the head of the table, and he's like, "Oh, guys, order a coffee, whatever you want." And I'm like, "Oh, I'll have a." Long black is an Americano in Australia. Mm-hmm. I have a long black. Oh, sorry, Ben. I don't have any coffee. What What do you mean you don't have coffee? Then, then we go, well, I, what have you got? He's like, oh, I've got tea. I'm like, I don't really want tea. Um, no, I'm good. Just water's fine for me. Went to the next person. She's like, oh, so latte? No, you don't have coffee. No, 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 I don't. Anyway, this exercise went down the full 10 people. Mm-hmm. And then coffee, coffee going, a coffee shop owner leaves. And then we all sit there going, what a joke. This place must be going broke. <laughs> oh, what a, that is just ridiculous. A coffee shop without coffee. Mm-hmm. Bill stopped us all in a moment and goes, hey, what do you think people say about real estate agents that don't have any listings? Ooh. And we all just looked at him and like, oh, yeah, but we've got listings. He's like, yeah, but what if, you could, what if you've only got one or two? Hmm. And, and it was a really profound thing that stuck with me for a long time. Yeah. That the moment that you don't have a listing is the moment that you are technically unemployed. Wow. And, 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 and it was just, again, I, 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 with the way that the real estate industry is going in North America, mm-hmm. from a buyer side perspective, and there is one, one part of this whole lawsuit that's going on at the moment, Greg, that if, if the buyer is not able to finance the commission, mm-hmm. right, that they need to pay a buyer's agent because that will eventually be what happens. There's no question it will be. You know, the US and Germany are the two most expensive places in the world to sell your home based on the way that, based because there's two sides to the equation. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's going to have the downward pressure. Wow. And listings are going to be really the only way that you can really make money if buyers can't finance the commission they need to pay to buyer's agents, right? If, yep. okay, Mm-hmm. Are you is your business prepared for that? So our company, 70% of all of our revenue comes from listings. Why? Because we just make a conscious conscious effort to do so. Mm. You know, like it, it's just 
And also our auction concept allows us to actually go out and prospect through getting listings. That's that's the primary focus. But anyway, I'm a little off track and I'm a little down a rabbit hole. Um, however, you know, the early days of my real estate career um, were based off the perspective of as many, like, like making sure that our business was a listing orientated business through and through, making sure that we turned one piece of business into another, into another, into another. And one of the things that I used to lose sleep over, and it's kind of silly to do so, is the thinking, well, I would never have got this listing if I never have got that listing, if I never had got this listing. It's like, it, it's just this, as long as there is a connection within your business, then it's a healthy growing business that is actually sustainable for the future. Mm. Anyway, long story short is that I was in the office ownership. There was a bit of a feud between Bill and Mel. There was a, a little bit of a hiccup from a financial perspective. I ended up getting um, getting a third of the business as ownership at a very, very young age. Okay. Um, um, they had a very large property management rent role as well as we, at that time, we were three offices. Um, we grew then the business to five offices and a much larger property management business as well with 1,200 doors and and mm -hmm. um, and over 75 agents across five offices in the Western suburbs, um, southwestern suburbs of, of Brisbane. Um, and I took on a role at that point is that I became the sales coordinator slash manager, like sales manager, whatever ultimately you want to call it, okay. um, is that Bill and Mel were much, 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 much older than I am. Okay. Um, and, and realistically is that, uh, is that it put me on a, it put me in a position to learn very quickly from a management perspective for agents hmm. and what they needed. But the one thing is that stepping out of sales, I had to realize very quickly that moving into the management side of the business, I wasn't going to make as much money. Mm. My job was to build something. And, and I really struggled with that in the very first degree of it all. I really right. did for about six months, um, being a young, egotistical kid. Um, I think I was 20, I think I was only about 23, 22 and a half at the time. Really? And it was, a, it was a very distinct learning because most of the people that were in the business were older. Yeah. And, you know, it was one of those things that I was managing by the way of going, well, I did double what you did, so you should listen to me, you know, kind of thing. And it was just it was a bit of an unhealthy environment. But the the the, the whole process of all of this happening is that um, Bill and Mel ended up having a feud and Mel actually bought Bill out. And at the same time, I got some advice from I got some advice from some some people to say, hey, you should take some of that money and run. Um, and I stayed on as the sales manager and all of that type of stuff as well. Mm -hmm. um, but. Um, but realistically is that what happened is what, what happened next is that I was in a bit of an unsettled place because I no longer had the ownership of the company. I wasn't making as much money because I wasn't selling real estate. Aaron Brooks, who was the CEO of Harcourts in Queensland, Australia, called me and goes, what are you going to do? And I'm like, oh, I'm probably going to go back to sell real estate. Wow. Um, and and he's like, he's like, well, why don't you come? I, he had a, he was in between because one of the skill sets that along the way is a parallel that I'd, 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 I'd gotten was to be an auctioneer. Um, and I'd become I'd become very good at the auction process that was being run within our business. That was one of the things that I'd do was manage the auction process with all of our agents when they would run auctions. And auctions would be about seventy percent of our business. Wow. Is that because that um, the number one agent in all of all of our company in Australia was an auction agent? The number one office was an auction office. You know, wow. all of those things. It's just it's very very clear cut in Australian and New Zealand real estate that auction is the way that the best operators deal. Mm -hmm. And because of the systematic process and the way that you do it and all that type of stuff. So that was one of the skill sets that I'd, I'd sort of learnt. And, and Aaron called me and goes, I don't have a chief auctioneer at the moment for Queensland, like to run the auction culture for all the businesses. Can you come in and you know, sort of do that for a little while? I'm like, ah, uh -huh. no, I, I'm okay. I don't really want to do that. And he's like, well, just do me a favour. I really need to get 
our courier mail advertising our presence up, mm. um, which is in Australia, the newspaper is still a thing. Sure. And sellers, sellers advertise in it, but they pay for it. Um, the agent doesn't pay for it. It's why the lower base commission is because the seller pays for all the real estate expenses up front. Mm. Um, and it was my job to go in with agents and, and pry tens of thousands of dollars out of a seller prior to them actually selling their property wow. in order to advertise so that we would have a larger presence as a company. Um, and uh, and I did that successfully. I went in and, and I enjoyed the challenge of it because as you can appreciate, Greg sitting in front of somebody that hadn't already sold their home, asking for money up front of $10,000 on a $500,000 property in order to advertise because advertising wasn't cheap. Mm. You know, it was one of the major parts. Another big learning element of all of this was we didn't do a lot of seller paid advertising in our company um, when I was running it in Forest Lake and, and for our Harcourt's um, Western suburbs wow. is that the thing that I did realise is the success rate if you got a seller to pay a certain amount of money up front. Mm. One or $2,000 wasn't a big enough commitment for them, but anything north of $2,000, mm. that would have a 99% list to sale ratio because mm. the seller has made an investment into doing it. There's some hurt money, but mm. ultimately they... They listen to the marketplace a lot more wow. um, from a, from an expectation perspective. So another thing I really had to adapt to here in North America, I believe a lot of sellers don't listen to the marketplace and the feedback because there's no, you know, they're not tied to an outcome in any way, shape or form. It's too cheap for them to do real estate in the first degree and just see how it goes. Um, so that was a big learning. Um, but as I developed through that, I did become the chief auctioneer of Hogwarts Queensland and and long story short, we built the auction business, became part of the corporate side of the real estate business, which okay. I don't know how I feel about that in Australia. It's a interesting, it's an interesting position to be in, going from not being in corporate to being in the corporate element of things. The people in corporate believe they do a wonderful job. The people external to corporate that they're servicing, no one believes they do a wonderful job. Um, <laughs> it's a funny relationship to be in um, and certainly seeing both sides of the equation, even though I'm in corporate business now for yeah. real estate. But I guess that the part that then led me to the North America side of things is yeah. that I got recruited by the biggest real estate company in Australia and, and New Zealand, which is Ray White. Um, and Ray White, when they have a problem, they point the money gun at it and they just shoot. Um, and I was lucky enough to get the money gun pointed at me. Mm. And, and I got this tremendous offer to go and run the auction business for Ray White in New South Wales, which is where Sydney and Canberra and and all of that, like the big part, it was, it's it's classified as the major leagues in okay. in Australian real estate. Sure. And as I and as I got that offer, I went to Mike Green, who's the managing director, and him and Irene Green own Harcourts internationally. Mm -hmm. um, and I went to them, and I had I was lucky enough to build a relationship with them. And and I went to Mike and I said, "Hey, <laughs> this is their offer." And he's like, "I'm not matching that. There's no way." And and he said, "But I can give you a different opportunity." And at that time, Harcourts had just entered North America. Um, and and Bob Wolf, um, who's a legend within the industry, Bob was one of the first agents to sort of introduce Harcourts to the US. And um, and I came over here uh, probably about two years into its inception. Okay. Um, and my role was to determine whether or not we could build a non-distressed auction model for our Harcourts business. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. So at that point, um, uh, we bought the auction business um, and we owned the auction excuse me, we own the concept of auction within North America and we and, and we moved here. Mm. Um, and that kind of leads me to where we are now 10 years ago. And it's uh, it's 
yeah, it's a it's a pretty deep dive to go into all of those in, individual parts of it. But that's kind of how we ended up in North America is that I saw an opportunity. And one of the things that people believe that, you know, certain people at different stages of their life, certainly when I was that young, because I moved here, what am I, I'm 34 now. So I moved here when I was 24 years of age. Wow. Um, and and the, the part of it was is that, most people didn't understand what I was doing because we were making, we were on track to make so much money. Right. But the problem was, is I've been doing the same thing for two years mm. and I couldn't see myself doing anything different in the next 10. It was okay. just going to be the same thing over and over again. Wow. And whilst it was a, whilst it was an incredible living, mm-hmm. there was never think, never anything from an ownership perspective. And there was never anything from the perspective of changing an industry. And that's where I saw the attraction to come to North America is that I could change the way that traditional real estate worked fundamentally. And again, I don't think we've made that drastic change in any way, shape, or form yet. But it's a hastened, slow journey. But every day we get to redevelop something. We get to put our own mark on it. We get to put our own stamp on the way that things are done. Mm. And for some reason, that resonated with Callista and I. So Callista is my better half. Okay. Um, uh, Calista is the operations manager for Harcourt's auctions. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we were pretty young in our relationship. We've only been together 12 months. And I said, hey, you want to move to the US because that's what I'm going to do. And she's like, oh, well, we could always move home. Um, <laughs> Good point. Well said. But that said is that it was funny. The egotistical nature of Australian real estate, and it's off the hook. It's, mm-hmm. as you can imagine, younger people making way, way, way more money than the traditional real estate agent here. Mm-hmm. it's just it's a very very and it's and it's a small industry too sure. um it's it's just it's it's uh it is toxic in a lot of ways and i hope that i don't offend anybody any aussies that are listening in the real estate space but i, I guess that it is and and well certainly it was viewed that way from us and and i guess that the the part of coming here it was funny for the first two years we would never have got to the level of success that we have slash did mm-hmm without thinking that people were watching us from afar Ooh. when to be honest no one no one gave a shit no one cared in any way shape or form but it was an egocentric thing for me and sometimes this is where i fall into the trap maybe it might not be ego it might be naivety it might be something else if you wanted to package it up in a different format sure. but the reality is is that that for the first two years mm-hmm. kept me going when i probably should have just went back to australia and go back to doing what i was doing wow like it, it was it was this it was this overwhelming perspective that if I had to go back to Australia with the tail between my legs mm-hmm. and it didn't work, that I could not recover. And that's one thing that now that I'm so grateful for in North America, failure mm-hmm. is actually something like I listen to podcasts every day from an entrepreneurial perspective, Greg, is that sure. failure is welcome. If someone hasn't failed, most of the time people won't even invest in the company that they're putting forward. Well said. And and I guess that in Australia, failure is laughed upon and it's looked like like the lack of entrepreneurial spirit of the Australian way of business mm. is something that I've certainly am so grateful for that I've moved to North America to open my mind up to a, a great deal, many things, so to speak. I think wow. the way that people are applauded for the successes and the way that people are propped up when they fail mm. um, is, is unbelievable. Where in Australia, there's this thing called tall poppy syndrome where the mm-hmm. people that are rising to the top the quickest, they people love to see them fall down. And I know that the people in North America, they actually say, oh, yeah, there's a little bit of that here. There is none of it in comparison to other parts of the world that I've, I've, I've had the pleasure of actually experiencing. 
Mm. And that's the part that I think is unbelievable in the US part of this business. But to, to sort of wrap it all up is that we build an auction business that services our real estate franchising company um, and also our corporately owned offices. So we have about 40 odd offices um, uh, out of which eight of those offices, um, my, um, myself and our business partner, Kevin Sanchez own that are corporately owned. Um, myself and Kevin Sanchez and Callista obviously own Harcourts North America from a franchising perspective as well. We own the auction business. Um, we have a title company, we have an escrow company. So we have a vertically integrated model. Um, but recently what we've been doing is reaching out um, into areas where Harcourts isn't to mm -hmm. give them the opportunity, the agents, the opportunity to use auction because it becomes such a benefit and a tool and a skill set that our agents internally have been using as well. And I want to dive into that, Ben, uh, you know, kind of laying the foundation for anybody who's not familiar with the, with the, uh, the model and everything that you're mentioning there. But I, I do want to, to kind of rebut a few things that you, you'd shared with your story. I love it. By the way, your story is incredible. Uh, you know, well beyond your years in looking at it from the age of 14, and the five series BMW getting hit by shopping cart, the best intro story as to how somebody got into real estate. Awesome. Having bill and mentorship and opportunity, but you at a young age to see that, to take it upon yourself, to take the action and be consistent, hitting highs and making adjustments and changes as ebbs and flows happen in a life. You're going down these paths in a journey, which are absolutely beautiful. So many people that are tuning in here are, are reflecting on their own personal story, their own personal journey. Where have I gone? Where did I make these decisions? How did I get in the business? And, and I love to hear the reflection of somebody to your caliber, Ben, because it's huge. And not only that, you had the money gun aimed at you yeah. at a super young age, and you made the decision to go to North America, to have an opportunity to really see these things through in, in a shifting and a changing uh, where, and no disrespect to anybody, but I think somebody of lesser would have taken the money and run. And, and I, and I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into your thought process and you alluded to it, to the opportunity and changing of impact and community and industry. Uh, but what was it like kind of reflecting back on it now would you do the same thing, Ben? I know that's a silly question, but would you have taken the money gun if you could go back or are you just glad that you went down that road that you did? Depends on what day you ask me, right? <laughs> Fair enough. I've got to be honest, for the last six months, you know, yep. we've, we've faced, the like, last 12 really as the marketplace has sort of shrunk from a transactional perspective. You know, it would be, it'd be lovely not to own everything and not be on the, on, on, on the hook for everything and Sure. And, you know, making capital injections and all of those different things. But, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, the the part of it that I think that I think that you have to pick your hard. Um, my, my coach, Julia Gentry, she she's she she always says this is that you pick your hard because nothing you're not going to you're picking less hard. Like people say, people say I'm going to pick the easy way. Oh, well, it's, it's just less hard. Um, mm -hmm. Would that would that responsibility and would that role that I would have gotten from Ray White? amounted to something big maybe but at the end of the day is that we really committed to this journey because of the nature of trailblazing yes. um trying to forge a path that nobody else had tried before mm -hmm. the other part as well is that there was a there's, there's definitely there's definitely a part of this greg that it was the naysayers that certainly gave me the fuel mm -hmm. um to do it like there's still dane afferton is one of the most successful real estate business owners that uh, in the world um mm -hmm. he runs the greatest real estate business um, that I've ever seen, um, full stop. And Dane was one of the first people to say, you're an idiot. What are you doing? I used to work for Remax in Australia. They tried this. And I'm like, 
and I still remember that. And that was still one of the major parts that moved me forward in doing it. Um, you know, and 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 then also, you know, Mike Green, um, uh, you know, there was another gentleman by the name of Jim Midgley at the time that mm-hmm. all of them said that if I had my time when I was your age, mate, I would just go and give it a crack for sure. That's an Aussie terminology is give something a crack. Yeah. Um, and and there was this part of it that, you know, there was a big calling to do it. Um, but then when we got here, Greg, it was just, it probably was a stupid decision. Like we were just so naive in it. Like it was, it was like, I came into this, like I'm going to do this exactly the same way as I do it in Australia. And then very quickly, real, I didn't even know what an MLS was. Mm. I, didn't, I didn't, like, we don't have MLSs really anywhere else in the world. Wow. And you have to conform to the rules of an MLS and all these different things. Like, and then the different legality side of it. And then don't get me wrong. And then you've got the challenges of then scalability. Like we started doing auctions at the front of somebody's home on a weekend, you know, on a Saturday, the same way that people would do it in Australia. And we got over a hundred people turned up to the first one. But auction is not about, everybody thinks that auction is about standing at the front of the property, having a million registered bids and getting an unbelievable result. It's not. It's a process to find value in the market. It's not the promise of a price. It is a process to find value. Now, whether the seller says yes or no to that is another thing. But then having to realize the differences in that, like I turned up, we didn't have any registered bidders for that auction. I had to stand out the front of 120 people and go, hey, folks, thanks so much for turning up today. No registered bidders here today. So what we're going to do is we're going to postpone the auction, so on and so forth. I had 100 agents that would never even consider doing auction ever again because they thought it was a failure. Mm-hmm. So therefore, we had to temper that. We had to hasten slowly. We had to start doing auctions and selling them prior to auction. And then we graduated doing them at the property with registered bidders and only doing them if we had registered bidders on the property. And then we had to proceed to then doing them in a physical location where we would do multiple properties at one time, an in-room auction, um, you know. And then we progressed, even prior to COVID, we progressed to doing online streamed auctions where we auctioned properties from all over North America, Mexico, Canada, West Coast, East Coast, all at the same time, you know, in order to then have that level of scalability. Like all of these things have been great to go through but you know it's been it's been part of the journey. But to answer the question more specifically, I don't think anybody should ever ask themselves whether or not they should have done something or should should not have done something. But I think that I, I think that um, or which way would you go if you had the option again? Sure. I think you've got to be very present in the moment and you've got to stick to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I have only seen a lack of consistency in real estate hurt someone. Wow. And regardless of whether I made the right or wrong decision. You know, I, I I like to be a product of consistency, of sure. sticking at something, even if it's blind loyalty or or, or stupid to do so. Um, you know, eventually, eventually something will stick. I really do believe, and 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 eventually, you know, you will build something that is unbelievable as long as you're in control of that guy. Sure. Yeah, and I love that response too, Ben. And and I agree with you wholeheartedly. I I think that. Looking at it from perspective, no one has a time machine. You can't travel back in time and change things. The decisions that we make are leading the path that we are growing from and learning from. Uh, you talked about failure being accepted, uh, you know, here in, into the states, and I, I think ultimately failure is a massive part of success. And yeah. and uh, ultimately, just really understanding where you are, where you're going, and what you can learn and project into the future. Uh, but more importantly than that, is to share with others. I, I, I think that. I like that question because it forces you to reflect. And then that piece of advice is pertinent for everybody. You can't travel back in time, but but everything that you're talking about in decision-making is great advice for everybody who's tuning in, myself included. I, I want to dive deep into the 
the auction process and, and talk about Harcourt's auctions. Uh, so let's go into there. So you, you came to the United States, uh, it was ebbs and flows, it was growing, you know, learning experiences. But for anybody who's not familiar with it, it just kind of if you were explaining it to somebody who's never heard of it before, Ben, what, what does that look like for you? How, how would you explain that to, to somebody getting involved? So, so essentially, um, if I give you an understanding of basically how we've sort of built the platform across the, the Harcourt's network is that um, it essentially is another tool in our agent's tool belt, okay? Wow. And, we're, and we're promoting it to be that in areas where we don't have Harcourt's businesses as well as another tool in someone's tool belt. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the things that we're doing is we're doing a bit of an outreach program in a certain few markets at the moment that we're seeing where the average days on marketplace are ticking up. This is probably the easiest way for you to grasp it or people to grasp it from the early perspective of things mm-hmm. is that let's say that you've got a listing. Um, it's been on the marketplace for a couple of weeks now. Now, one of the things that we've identified in the change since COVID is the fact that 45 days used to be the pain point where a seller used to start to really get upset with you, so to speak, okay? Um, and, you know, if you're a good agent, you will be able to get a price reduction with inside the first 30 days, and that's what you should be doing. Because if you were to look at the statistics through Zillow and, and really dive into these and the way that we train our agents, the way that we train the people that work with us from an auction perspective is that you've only got 10 days until the, the the hits on Zillow start to drop. And then if you do a price reduction on that property, it only ticks it up for three days and then they start to drop again. So technically you should be doing a price reduction after the first one every three days if you wanted to tick that interest up. Then the other thing that you look at on the West Coast of North America, that if a property has one price reduction, statistically 90% of properties that then go into escrow have to have two more price reductions in order to to get there because that first price reduction usually isn't enough because the seller or the agent is in denial of the way that it needs to go. Mm. And then also then there's this, you know, this, this scale down of then people waiting, seeing blood in the water, whatever it may be. And then the other part of all of this as well, that, that, that I see as a problem is that, you know, an agent's opinion of value gets in the way of ultimately what a property is worth. Right. And, and that is something where the auction process allows our agents and the people that have embraced our process to go into a listing presentation and say to a seller is that, hey, my job is not to tell you what your home is worth because with all due respect, my opinion doesn't count mm. because I'm not willing to pay whatever money comes out of my mouth for your property. With all due respect, your opinion, whilst it's valid because you decide on whether or not you sell the property, okay, your opinion also is kind of irrelevant. Sure. Also, the opinion of an appraiser is irrelevant as well, because we might be able to get an appraisal on this property right now. But unless the appraiser is willing to pay that amount of money, that price doesn't exist. Right. So one thing that I can offer you today, because we are in a marketplace that is relatively turbulent when it comes to price, low inventory levels, some properties sitting, some properties moving really quickly. I think that I would be insulting your intelligence, Mr. and Mr. Seller, if I was to give you a price out of my mouth and I simply use your property as a guinea pig and tarnish the property's reputation. So I've got this other strategy and it is auction where we put a very low bidding to start from price on the property and we allow the marketplace to speak and find its own feet. And then we can make a decision of yes or no, you're still in complete control, okay? Or we could go back to traditional and price it based on the feedback that we've gotten from real people that can afford the property, okay? And and so that's one tactic that people can use it for. The other tactic, the other tactic that a lot of people are using it for is expired or for sale by owner listings is to reach out and say, I genuinely have something different for you to use mm-hmm. in this situation. Why would I offer you the same process that didn't work for you previously? Right. To be realistic with you, Mr. Seller, is that if you don't drop your price by fifty thousand dollars, it's not going to have any impact whatsoever. Okay. So the only thing that I could do differently for you is market the property at a different price point. Okay. Or tell you to wait and in six months' time we might be marketing it to a different market. 
So again, auction presents an opportunity for an agent that if they're in a highly competitive situation that they can stand out from the pack, but it also provides them with an, with an opportunity to prospect and build opportunities through failed traditional listings. Okay. Now, again, that hasn't been overly prevalent over the last number of years, but still, you know, we've got several agents that we operate with that have been making millions of dollars every year using that tact. Okay. Wow. Um, but also agents that do a lot of their business more so traditionally, they just use it every now and then because there's another part of this process that a lot of agents are using that process for as well, is that going into a listing presentation saying, Mr. Masilla, I know you want a million dollars for your property. Why don't we go out and put it at a million fifty? Okay, see if there's any low hanging fruit. But instead of me coming back and asking you for a price reduction with inside two weeks, I can offer you to transition your property through to the auction process at that point. Mm. Okay, it casts the net a little bit further, it engages more people, it is a great deal more work for me. But in essence, instead of putting a price reduction on your property, we can engage a different level of audience. Okay, and really put people in a position where they have to make a decision. Um, and that's one. An auction is so malleable and flexible depending on the marketplace, Greg. In a good market, we're like, and this is where I go into a rant on this. So just forgive me. Rant, do it, do it. Let, let me give you an example, okay? I'm going to give you an example of San Francisco because that was a marketplace that we went to on a white label auction perspective, okay? Mm -hmm. And 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 this is this is one of the things that I find absolutely just over the top frustrating about our industry mm -hmm. is that. Agents are the gatekeepers to the sellers. Now, just so you know, 99% of the time, if you sit in front of a seller and you talk to them about auction, it is so logical that it's hard to deal, hard to, hard to argue with it. And yep. they'll go, yep, we'll do it. But out of every 10 agents that we approach with a property that's been on the marketplace a period of time, maybe two of them might be open to mentioning it to their sellers, mm. right? And, and that's where the agent being the gatekeeper, when we have something that genuinely could help them, I have a bit of an ethical problem with that. Yeah. Um, in, in the sense that they're not offering them something that probably could get their home sold for a better price mm. based on their ego. Um, right. so so that's one of the things that that gets in the way of it. But yeah. in San Francisco, when we entered the marketplace, one of the things that we had to do was prove to the existing agents that auction was actually getting more money than a regular multiple offer situation. There we go. So over the last number of years, people would have experienced the imitation style of auction. Mm -hmm. Being you set an offer date on the property, you put the price a little bit lower than what the seller wants, creates multiple offers. And then on day seven or day five, you review those offers and you accept the offer that is the highest of the better terms. Mm -hmm. So I'm a pure believer here, Greg. A property is not worth as much as someone's willing to pay. A property is not worth as much as someone's willing to pay in competition. Mm -hmm. A property is worth as much as someone's willing to pay in transparent competition. Ooh, okay. So, so let me give you an example of that. We had a property in the Bay Area in the Marina District of San Francisco. Are you familiar with San Francisco at all? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. A little bit. So the Marina District is beautiful. On the waterfront there, you view out over the, onto the Golden Gate Bridge, out to Alcatraz. You've got the mm -hmm. Palace of Fine Arts. It's a spectacular location in San Francisco. I believe it's one of the best. Mm -hmm. And we had a two-bedroom. Oh, sorry, there was a two-bedroom, one-bathroom condo. Um, it was a couple of streets back from the water, Okay. Um, and it was traditionally listed. It so happens to be that we had a property on the second level. So it was on the exact same level in the exact same building, the exact same floor plan, the exact same condition that we were going to be putting live as an auction, okay, about a week later after the property list. So I said to Shannon, who is our regional director, I said, hey, let's just wait for a second. Okay, we'll put this on here shortly and we can compare our results to this property. Perfect. So, so this property went on the market as traditional, had a seven-day offer date. Okay, they had three offers on the property um, before the offer date. They chose to sell it. They sold it for $980,000. Mm -hmm. 
right? Great result. Seller was just static. They listed it for 800,000 grand. It's a great result, right? For sure. But this is the problem. People don't know what they don't know. That agent, I, the agent's lovely. We've done deals with her um, um, after, mm-hmm. but but no idea that she undersold the property. Zero idea. Don't know that you don't don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Took the same property. A week later, we put it live as an auction. The auction date from going live in the MLS through to about three week lead up to the auction itself, okay, was three weeks. Mm. Right, so a little longer than normally. And sure. we chose because of the volume of interest in this property, we chose to hold it on the marketplace for a long period of time. Wow. Like longer period of time. Sure. So we took took it all the way through. We had in total, they had three, that traditional listing had three offers, okay, on it. We had in excess of nine offers, okay. Now, what we did, we got all of those people and we registered them to bid at auction. Okay. So in an online environment, it is still a live auction where I'm the auctioneer. They register to bid. They show that they've got their financial situation is appropriate and we approve that. And they 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 um, verify their identity. And if they have a buyer's agent, the, that buyer's agent is attached to the deal as well. Mm-hmm. Now, we registered them to bid for auction. Now, out of those nine offers that we had on the property prior to auction, okay, we had about seven of them registered to bid. The other ones we said, probably no point in you registering because their conditions and their terms were, were well good enough. Because in the auction process, we negotiate their contingencies or their terms of that deal before we let them bid at auction. Wow, I love that. So now in that situation, we got a million sixty-five five hundred. So what's that? That's eighty-five five hundred um, more thousand uh, dollars more than that previous unit. But wow. that is not the staggering thing in all of this, Greg. Hmm. I can get you more money, no problem, because that comes down to the person negotiating and their experience and all of those different things. Okay. And the leverage that you have. An auction gives you wonderful leverage. Mm-hmm. And I believe that the transparent nature of someone feeling comfortable, they can see and they can have the final say. How many times have people experienced their buyer going, oh, well, if I knew they paid that, I would have paid that as well, okay, and missed out on a deal. Auction gives them the opportunity for final say. However, this is the more staggering thing. We had the property on the market for three weeks. We tracked where, where at what time did the highest bidder come through? Mm-hmm. At the end of week two. That's when they engaged with the property. If I had a seven-day offer date on that property, I would have undersold it, yep. right? So then we started strategically looking at this statistic across all of our auctions. If I told you 47% of the time that the best buyer that pays the most amount of money, whether it's before auction with an offer or on auction day, comes at the end of week two and the beginning of week three in that space, 47% of people. So I can say categorically in the markets we operate in that if you're if you sell a property before the end of week two, that you've 47% of the time undersold it. Mm. And this is this whole philosophy that we come into is that traditional is like fishing with one fishing line, one piece of bait waiting for somebody to bite it. Auction is casting a net, dragging the net in and going through the good, the bad and the indifferent Mm -hmm. and then putting them in a situation to compete against each other. Now, let me move over because that's in a situation where you've got a great deal of interest. Sure. Let's talk about how auction works when you don't have any interest at all. Right. That's fair contrast. Yeah. So let's say ring, 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 you call a listing. Um, it's expired. It's expired for a reason. Seller is way high on price. It's bad location. Property's got defects, whatever the ultimate thing is. Mm-hmm. Okay. So automatically you're pushing it uphill anyway. Right. And with auction, how that benefits is that one, we have a bidding to start from price where if a seller's expectations are too high, 
with auction, their expectations are hidden behind closed doors with a non-disclosed reserve. We put a bidding to start from price out to the marketplace that's much lower, much, 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 much lower, making it the best value per square foot in the entire area and the entirety of the competing areas as well. Hmm. So therefore, you property real estate is about you have to outprice and you have to outprofile. Auction does both. Wow. And the word auction, I've never met somebody who wants to overpay for real estate. And this is why we get about 53% more people through the front door of an auction, even if it's been traditionally listed previously, and over a thousand percent more online engagement. Because let me just refine it a little bit deeper for you, Greg. The yeah. word auction on its own is a dirty word. Sure. Non-disclosed, bad title, courthouse yeah. steps. I can't even go look at it before I buy it, all these things. But auction... With the way that we do things, you are required to do all home inspections, termite reports, natural hazard disclosures, preliminary titles, all normal disclosures that would happen within escrow or when that property goes under contract or through the attorney states or whatever it is, all that full disclosure okay, wow. has to happen up front okay. on every one of our properties. Perfect. So that's one thing done. The <laughs> second thing, beautiful marketing skill. These properties aren't distressed in any way, shape or form. The next thing is that they get to go and see the property, touch it. And then they have an auction team that works through the process with them. Mm. Meanwhile, there's still the listing agent. The listing agent deals in the emotion, where it is, what it is, why it's amazing, deal with their clients. We deal in the factual evidence. Mm. We don't have any preconceived idea of what the property is worth. So therefore, we don't, we are not tainted. We don't get, we don't defend the price. Mm. Okay. All of those different things. We just go, so what do you think it's worth? Oh, well, we think it's worth. 800. Great. How did you arrive at that number? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, that's kind of our budget. Well, that's not real feedback. It's just uh -huh. they want it to be worth 800. Whereas right. if someone says to me, if you go, oh, it's worth 800. Okay, great. What's your budget? About a million dollars. Okay. Um, how long have you been looking for? Six months. How many other offers have you placed on properties? Three other offers on a few other properties. Great. Where, have, where else have you been looking at? Locally sourced and they think it's worth 800. That is feedback. Mm -hmm. That's valid. Yeah. That's valid. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the third party in the equation is the only people that can do that. And I'll give you an example of why. 50% um, of the time, our auction team will get a phone call from the listing agent. Hey, Ben, I just had a great showing. Um, these people are really interested. Can you reach out to their agent or reach out to the buyer and explain auction? No problem. We'll do. Ring, ring, ring. Hi there. Just speaking to Greg. Um, uh, he said that you really enjoyed 123 Smith Street. Oh, Ben, we just didn't have the heart to tell Greg. Um, it's just not for us. Mm. Really, is it? Because there's no emotional tie to the property whatsoever, they are most agents and buyers are scared to actually give true feedback to the listing agent themselves. And if you don't believe that, I've got 50% of the time that we get a phone call to reach out to somebody to prove that. Right. Absolutely. And 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 it's just it's amazing what a third party does in the equation of that transaction. But getting back to the primary point, what yeah. if there's not a great deal of interest in that property? Sure. See, in let's say that you have a listing, it's been on the marketplace 30 days traditionally, a mm -hmm. buyer walks in the front door. They know they're in complete control of that negotiation at this point, right? Sure. There's no one else interested. Yep. Right. They know they know that. Okay. Whereas with auction, they walk in the door, might be at the end of week two. Let's say we haven't had a great deal of interest. Mm -hmm. Now they say, well, what other interest do you have? Well, we've got auction date approaching in another week or so. Okay, but do you have any offers? No, we don't have any offers, but we have auction day and people can register to bid for auction day. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um now. Another situation, 97% of the time, we'll get an offer on a property prior to auction day at the low at the low end of the bidding to start from price. So immediately, then it creates leverage. We can say to that buyer, hey, we do have an offer on the property that may or may not stop the auction. But if you would like to stop the auction, you can submit an offer prior to auction day to do so. Oh, well, I don't want to be involved in auction. No way. I, why would I do that? I don't want to be involved in more competition. Right. We'll, put an offer, we'll put an offer in. Mm -hmm. Okay. They put an offer in. 
Now, in that situation, they're probably going to have all the terms and all the contingencies under the sun. The offer is probably not going to be great. Now, if they're the only buyer, you can counter offer and do all of these different things, but they don't know they're the only buyer at this point. They know that auction date is approaching. So we go back to them and say, hey, auction, yeah, that's not enough to stop the auction. Well, will you send us a counter? No, we're not going to have an auction before an auction. You can either increase your offer or remove your terms or whatever it may be. If you want to stop the auction, you just need to do better. Wow. And this creates leverage in a situation that you normally wouldn't have leverage in. Ben, I got I to gotta ask you this because to me, and again, this is the deepest dive that I've ever gone down into this world and it's absolutely fascinating. Why would someone decide not to do this? What, what it, why, why does somebody say, I don't want to go down that road? Because to me, that just makes 1000% sense. Great for everybody getting... involved to get the maximum amount for the best possible results under every yeah. circumstance, that makes tons of sense. So wh- why does somebody not? Is it lack well, of knowledge? Is it is it ego? W- what is it? Well, it's it, unfortunately to the agent community out there, it's their agent. Um, okay. The, the the reality is, and again, this may you know may or may not help us. Um, probably won't. Is that remember the agent is the gatekeeper of whether or not the seller gets to hear this information. Right. Our client is not the seller. Our client is agents. Mm. And those agents have to be responsible for offering us an opportunity to walk in the door with them. And, you know, here's a great example of that. Like, like, um, for example, the Harcourt's agents in Southern California, mm-hmm. if your property's on the marketplace over 45 days, there is an 87% chance that that property will expire. Wow. Guess what the percentage chance is that it will become an auction? It's in excess of 60%. So why wouldn't you come to a Harcourts agent before that and ask them to partner? Now, if there's not a Harcourts local to you, mm-hmm. we can offer the process to you as a white label service. And it's still your listing, still your control. It's still, everything is still yours. All the data is still yours, everything like that. Like it's like, mm-hmm. like Greg, to answer the question more precisely, it's their agent because this is our biggest challenge at the moment. And like, I've had investors offer me tens of millions of dollars mm-hmm. to, to make this go around the agent to the consumer because it is the only roadblock to why this is not the next Redfin or whatever it may be, is that the agents. And, you know, at the end of the day, we don't want to cannibalize our other businesses, of course. Sure. Um, and 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 realistically, though, is that if you look at this, is that if this is... And the other part about all of this as well is that you've got to have a deeper understanding of what auction is. Um, sure. yeah, most yeah. people... most And what I mean by that is that most agents do an auction and then if they don't have registered bidders and it, and it doesn't get a price that the seller wants, they think they either oh, know the auction was a failure. With all due respect, is that here's a good example of this. From the day we started, we kept this statistic for Harcourt's auctions. Mm-hmm. We've only ever sold 1% of our properties for more after auction day than what we were able to get before auction or on auction day itself. Now, now this is a belief thing, Greg. I know categorically, categorically, because of how long I've been doing it and how many I've done, mm-hmm. auction is unequivocally the best way to do this. Yeah, I know. I know that, but but people don't know what they don't know. And I can just I can give them that statistic that one we've only ever sold one percent of properties for more than what we were able to get before on auction day. And people are like, oh, whatever, or there's so many statistics that are just thrown around. But I know that what I get that seller before auction and on auction day, I've got the most amount of leverage and it will be the highest price that they will get. And why does not why doesn't a seller a seller why doesn't a seller accept that? It's just expectation that you haven't managed correctly. Wow. So 
There is another part of this and why people don't do it. Well, excuse me. One is the agent not wanting to offer it to their sellers as an alternative because they didn't bring it up in the first degree and they don't know how to introduce it to the sellers now that they're like, why didn't you offer me this in the beginning? All of this type of stuff. That's one of the one of the things that agents are fearful of. And I've got to be honest, sometimes sellers turn around and go, well, why didn't you talk to me about this in the beginning? Falling on the sword and hiding out in the open and saying, hey, I, did, I got approached with this. I didn't know it existed, you know, might be the way to go. But right. but then there's another part of there's another part of this as well is that why agents don't like it's funny. We do auctions with agents all the time. We mm -hmm. do one auction, and we have a repeat and referral base of, of our business about seventy percent. But why do thirty percent of them never do an auction again? Because okay. their perception of failure. Ah, we can present the marketplace in most times. We can mm -hmm. get them the outcome, but if the seller doesn't accept it, they're like, ah, oh, no, it didn't work. How many times have you listed a traditional listing and then the seller not sell it? Exactly. And then, but you've listed it traditional again, or you list another one traditionally. Mm -hmm. It blows my mind with the hip hypocrisy that people don't know that they're doing. Unbelievable. Anyway. Yeah, this is, I love going down this rabbit hole with you. I, I think that there's so many people that are just uh, ill-advised, uh, you know, lack of understanding and, and opportunity for, for this incredible you know, setup, I, I think to me is, is huge. You mentioned white label. Uh, what does that mean for everybody out there who there isn't a, you know, a geographic Harcourts right there? Let's just dive into that a little bit, because I'm curious for anybody who's tuning in, like, okay, I love what Ben's saying. I mean, this yeah. makes perfect. I'm adding tons of value to my clients, to the yeah. consumer. This is, this is a tool in my tool belt that I now have that I didn't have before. What, what does that look like for them? Well, again, they can reach out to us through our Harcourts Auction website. We are happy to partner with agents um, that want to use the process. Like, for example, um, we through the process of, of us getting to the point that we probably want to look for investment to take this figure and so on and so forth, is that is that um, if you have a look at what we've been doing in the Bay Area, for example, we started an outreach program. Chris Cochran is our head of head of marketing, and Chris um, Chris has started an outreach program that if a property has been on the marketplace for longer than 30 days, we, out, we we sent an email out to them and they targeted on social media to say, this is an option for you. Would you be open to and listening and hearing about what the process is? And then we could do a presentation to your sellers or something along those lines. And that's what my team, that's what our team is doing day in and day out at the moment. Okay. Um, and there is an incredibly healthy appetite, even in this marketplace where there's low inventory, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's there's a there's a very healthy appetite for agents that if they want to do that they just need to reach out to us we can do a presentation to them to make sure that they understand what the concept is they mention it to their sellers we can then do the presentation for them as well um, mm -hmm. and then we partner with them in order to help them educate their client facilitate the auction follow up people handle offers prior to auction we essentially are a co-listing agent um, you know in our fee structure we only get um, it depends on where you are okay but our fee structure is one percent. Okay. Um, uh, of the sale price only for property sells. Um, and there is an administration fee up front of $500 that either the sellers pay for or the agent pays for. It just depends on what point of the relationship is the agent is. Some agents absorb that. Some agents choose to pass it on, mm -hmm. um, but we're happy to. Um, and and, and we're, we're happy to talk through all of that with the agents and coach them through it and give them a little bit more of a deeper understanding of what it looks like. Love it. And Ben, I, I appreciate the in-depth uh, you know, detail orientation into that, because I think, like I said, there's so many people that just don't know what they don't know. Um, this is eye-opening for sure into that statement. We'll have links in the comments down below for everybody to learn more, to dive deeper into this. I, I want to ask you uh, an additional question, Ben. Uh, you know, looking back at your career, did you think when you first started out 
back then that you were going to be CEO someday? Did CEO um, in your mind ever come into the equation? You know, was that ever a direct path or was that just, how did that happen? I guess that's maybe a better question. You know, the, the, it's, it's funny you ask that question at the moment. I've, I've, my goal is to have a big enough, big enough vision that anybody that works with us, their vision for the rest of their life can fit within it. Oof. And I've been, and I've been struggling with that recently. Greg, I've, I've, I don't know what whatever I don't know what's next. But sure. to answer your question bluntly, yes. Mm. Uh, again, it might not I might not have said CEO, but I knew that I was, I don't know, I just knew that I wanted to be the boss. I knew that I wanted, I knew that I wanted to be in control of what I'm building. I knew that I wanted to, you know, be responsible for it. Now, sure. don't get me wrong, there's been moments where I haven't liked being responsible for it over the last 12 months, but but I guess that I, I guess that there was always that opportunity that there was that there was always that thought in my mind that I was going to be who I am today. Um, but there's this other part that it constantly has to evolve. And that's something I'm going through at the moment is that what is the next evolution of this? I'm struggling with trying to think bigger Mm. because it's one of those things from a visualization perspective is that, you know, visualizing where you're going while I don't entirely believe on that, believe in that because delusions of grandeur are something that people really do buy into on a regular basis, and their visions can outweigh their capability to a further, a very, very far degree. When well, they so- start, they, they they start going down rabbit holes that that essentially really harm them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is something that you know I've struggled to go like like. There's been so many people that have said to me about what we're doing that we could be the next this, next that, next oh. this. And because I can't get there mentally, it's mm-hmm. the only reason that it isn't yet. Wow. And 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 that's the part of this journey that I'm going through at the moment, the discovery process of how, the discovery process of what other companies have gone through, the discovery process of of, of how they got there. And, and there's another part in all of this as well. Yeah. I am a real estate agent. Mm-hmm. I'm not a CEO. I'm a CEO that is, I'm a real estate agent that has learned how to be a CEO, mm-hmm. effective, I don't know, you'd have to ask others, um, but but realistically is that it's, it's it, it, I was listening to this podcast the other day about founders, mm-hmm. is that so many of us do not have the business acumen to move a business past the Series A, and it's so true. Right. I'm really, 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 really great at starting the concept. Mm-hmm. And I'm really great at raising funds for it. And I'm really great at taking it to this point. Sure. But I need someone better to take it beyond that because I don't know how. You know, what's really fascinating about that, Ben, and I appreciate the transparency and, and, and candid nature in this conversation because there, there's so many elite individuals that are really looking for that next challenge, that next step, the evolutionary path into their life. Um, you know, thinking big enough, it's that old adage, whatever your goal is, triple it. And it's still probably not big enough. I, I think we all think too small into that nature, but there is some of that over thought process, depending on who it is outweighing the capabilities. You mentioned the how, and I think in term, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you feel differently, but a lot of the conversations that I've had with incredible CEOs such as yourself and you know entrepreneurs at the highest of levels and category, they look at the who, not so much the how. So you're, you're basing it in capability, but who is Ben surrounding himself with? Who yeah. else is coming into the fold into Ben's organization, right? And, and how is that going to take it to that next spot after the vision? So I don't know how you feel about the who, 
well, it's just how it's, it's funny. The more you look into it, the more you look into it. And again, this not, might not be the right approach. Is that let's say that you let let let's say you look at you look at any company, right? You look at any company, mm-hmm. and you look at the big ones, and you're like, oh yeah, yeah. But the founder of those is still the CEO. That means the idea is better than the CEO themselves. Mm. So Facebook, Tesla, you know, um, Apple, mm-hmm. you know, like like. Like the idea and the product was far better than the CEO's capability. Mm. And therefore it just attracted the right talent and it scaled. And that's, you know, I think people that are the founders are the CEOs by default. And then, and, the, and again, that is a generalized statement. Don't get me wrong. I believe that there's many, many people out there, um, you know, and at the end of the day, it's, it's interesting to understand, you know, maybe Gary Keller, you know, as well, like Gary was the founder, you know, and now he's still the CEO. Could it have been bigger and could it have been better if he wasn't? Maybe. Okay, but there's very capable individuals that know what they're doing. But let's face it: is that a lot of us are running businesses that we really have no business running. Wow, awesome. you know, like again, I am a real estate agent that has figured out how to be a CEO, and I probably do it not well. Okay, but I'm getting it to a point where hopefully someone else can carry that on, and I can keep doing what I'm the best at, which is being a visionary or everything that we're trying to build. Mm-hmm. And and that's part of, I really do believe. Part of our real estate agents' issues mm-hmm. is the fact that they believe that they progress to this level of self-entitlement where they don't have to work any longer. Unfortunately, okay, trying to replace yourself never actually works within the real estate business. Yeah. Okay. And and those that seek that are the ones that don't have the longevity. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you into that nature that the burnout is into that category. Uh, it's it's fascinating to me to hear you say this, Ben, the the amount of character and humility uh, that you have, the integrity that, that comes out of this conversation is, is huge. I can argue with you and, and beg to differ and say you're incredible at what you do and, yeah. and uh, you know, that everything does happen for a reason. You're a true practitioner in nature and you've earned your stripes. I think ultimately you continue to evolve and grow and change in, in an ever-changing world and an ever-changing industry and market. And I think that it sets the standard and the bar very high for people that are tuning into this to say, wow, look what Ben's done. Like just yeah. have reflection. It's not to pat yourself on the back and say, oh, wow, I've done all this in a short period of time. That's not it at all. It's to say, inspire to do more, to, to really look to what the possibilities are into a life. I mean, what legacies that we're leaving behind, the impacts that we're having in the communities that we serve, the industry that we serve, just our friends, our family, our colleagues, just around the world. I think that that's an inspiration just in and of itself. I I do want to dive into one more question, Ben, and I know that this episode is wonderfully in length. I I always say this, have deep- I I, I do, Greg, I just want to add something right there. I think- Oh yeah, I'll hit me. There's one one part there that I want to to just preface um, to everybody is that I, I, what I'm incredibly grateful for in our journey is that I've found a purpose that I can push. And, and what I mean is that it's, it, yes, don't get me wrong. It is still about the money for me. It yeah. is still about the money. There is no question that it is about the money, but the thing that I'm, I've seen a great deal of people get that money and then not understand their level of purpose, sell their company, do all of that type of stuff. And I've seen, I've seen some devastating stories of incredible individuals just wither away mentally whatever it is okay i'm just i'm i'm grateful that i'll be in the auction business within real estate for the rest of my days because regardless of the money i've got a purpose in order to push what i believe a more effective real estate process through to the 
through, through to the community, through to the real estate community. Because again, that's one of the reasons I don't believe we've been replaced by an algorithm is because we deal in emotion. Okay. Um, I often say this, and this is not for the public ears, but we manage greed for a living. That's what we do. And there is no algorithm that manages greed. No, no, no. I, I hear you, Ben. And, and I think that ultimately that's, that's a directive and a dialogue that people really need to open up and understand. I love the fact that you're honest into that nature to say, Hey, you know, the, the financial piece to this equation is, is a, a result to the product. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that ultimately some people look at that as a scorecard in, in, in evolution. What's interesting and in note, and so many people don't like to talk about this. Um, I saw a very interesting post the other day, and it was talking about, uh, you know, a gentleman that was on an airplane, first class, sitting next to, you know, an older gentleman, and that older gentleman was actually FaceTiming on the plane uh, with, it looked like a bunch of grandkids. And so what ended up happening was, is after that FaceTime or Zoom, whatever it ended up being ended, the gentleman asked him, he says, I'm sorry to, you know, interrupt, but you know, how many grandkids do you have? And he said 16 or something like that. And the reflection based off of it was they had a dialogue and conversation back and forth with one another. And he said, Hey, I was you on business trips my whole life. I miss so much of my kids and all these things. And I'm just trying to make up the time. You're not going to look back on it and say that I wish that I did these things. It was the people that you love and care for that you wish you spent more time with. You're never going to deny that from it. And I think that there's so many people that struggle into that nature to say, well, is it about family and personal beliefs first? Am I trying to shape a community and an industry, leave a legacy first? Ben, for you being in the position that you're in to doing what you do at the high level, what's your perspective on any kind of balance or harmony or what advice would you give into that nature? I I mean, there's no right or wrong answer to it. I'm just curious as to what your thoughts are on that. I'm I'm kind of the wrong person to ask about that, Greg, from a political politically correct standpoint. No, that's fine. You're not the wrong person. That's I want to hear what you feel. Clister and I I have probably made a decision that we don't want kids um, yes. uh, based on the perspective of that we don't know how we would balance it Sure. Um, based on what we have. Mm-hmm. And now will that change? We're both 34 years of age. We've probably got a couple of years left to change, to change that. Oh yeah. Um, and you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting part of our life in, in that we're right, at, we're right at that point where we probably have to make a decision on that. And, and there's a, there's a part of this that I don't believe in balance. Um, I I often people say you don't work a day in your life if you love what you do and bullshit 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 um and <laughs> right and and and, and I, I just I just have never believed in balance in the sense that I believe in that your life will be consumed by what you do for a period of time mm-hmm. if you want to do it at a high level yeah I, like I, I do, that's that's all like I I do want to do this at a high level mm-hmm. and I think it would be selfish for me to bring others into the world that depend on me sure because i want to do this at a high level and and i've i've made that decision but mm-hmm. it's also making sure that you don't kid yourself is that is that this this constant battle in people's mind you go i want to be the best at this but then i need to be spend all the time with my family mm-hmm. and and i've got to be conscious with the people that work with us that have families because yeah. you know i will send an email at eight o'clock at night i will send a text message at eight o'clock at night i will i will i will get up first thing in the morning and be thinking about that and I will send something and I will call somebody after the hour. So I'm going to be very conscious of that. But mm-hmm. but that said is that 
I don't believe in balance if you want to be the best. And and that may be naive, but but it is but it is something that you have to make a choice. There is has to be compromise in one area if you want to be the best. And if you've made a decision that you only want to make X amount of money and you only want to do X amount of deals because you love your balance, congratulations. That is great. But don't ever be pissed off at yourself that you're not getting number one at the awards. Uh-huh. Like let's 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 manage our expectations here. Whereas yeah. for me, you know, I've got a number, I've got a goal. But then overall, the thing that I'm very grateful for is the purpose, mm. which is our auction business. Yeah. Um, and and I've got a purpose in the sense of that, you know, I really do believe like our, our vision statement is inspire a better way. Yeah. You know, and, and our vision statement for our auction business is to be the leading innovator in real estate, um, real estate ideas mm. in the real estate community. And then our, our you know, our, our, our other mission statement for our franchise businesses, we will be in the trenches alongside our people every day building it with them. Wow. And that's one of the things that we've chosen to do as our business is that well, I can't compete against Rheology, I can't compete against Carol Williams, I can't compete against Compass, I can't compete against that within our real estate businesses because we don't have the money gun and I don't operate in a publicly traded platform where I don't need to make profit, mm-hmm. okay? So... So where we go in is that what's the space that I can I can do this in? I can build it from scratch. If you look at all of our business owners and a lot of people that we operate with, we literally have gotten a- decent agents, mm-hmm. that, and then we've built a business with them, you know. And and then we we've gotten agents that have just started in the business, used auction to propel them to several million dollars of GCI and strategically the best agents that I've ever seen that if they chose that they didn't like auction anymore, they would run rings around traditional agents because auction is a process. And they just take that same process and they put it in place in their traditional business. So to answer the question more specifically again and reiterate is that I just never believed in balance if you want to be the best of what you do. I, I think that that's a huge reflection into that, Ben. And again, that's a very personal decision is the journey that we all take in life. Uh, there's no right or wrong answer into that equation. And I was curious into your nature. I, I think that there's always evolutionary decisions that we can make and no one has a crystal ball to know when or if those decisions ever come to fruition. Mm -hmm. But having that directive understanding of what your goals are and segmented nature, that's, that's it. Focus, stay focused. Life will evolve and happen around us. I I agree with you hundred percent. You can't be the, the, at the pinnacle. If you look at anyone under any circumstance, under any operational, if it's business, if it ends up being political, if religious, health-wise, or relational, no one at the highest level has been excellent at everything. It just yeah. doesn't happen. They're very, very good at that one very specific thing, and the others are taken away from time. It's, it's next to impossible to have that perceived notion. I think, uh, what is it, Jeff Bezos uses harmony instead of balance. Like when you're in the moment, you're 100% involved in those moments. Everything else is on the wayside or suffering because you're not there. You got to be 100% in when you're doing what you're doing. If you're if you're a dad, if you're a spouse, uh, if it ends up being a friend, if it ends up being a business professional entrepreneur or CEO, like when you're doing it, do it. Be 100%. When you're away, Focus on what's there. Being present, I think is crucially important, but there's no right or wrong way to live this life. That's what's so beautiful about it. And, and to my opinion and perspective, there's no right or wrong way to do business. I mean, it, there, there's a path in a life and you decide that. I think an alignment in nature is huge with surrounding yourself with great people. Ben, it's an honor for me to have had these conversations with you on your show, which is incredible. I, I do want to jump into this. 
because behind your head, my friend, is actually your podcast, Rethink Real Estate. I want to talk about that. But what I was mentioning, though, Ben, is I think that having conversations like this are, are what's a massive importance of level into life. It's not how's the weather, what how's the sporting team doing, because let's get down to these conversations that are really going to shape and shift your thought process to impact people that are around you make a difference right for yourself but then for others and i know that's a big proponent into what you do on your podcast so for me from a podcast host to a podcast host i, I gotta let the audience know let's talk about rethink real estate real quick why you started it uh you know the, the research that i did correct me if i'm wrong but 167 episodes are out there now i'm sure there's more that are in the pipeline but what is the show about and you know kind of give everybody that that uh, elevator speech as to what it is and and why you started it well it just started as as, as communic easier communication for for agents within our real estate community that we operate within for them to understand different practical elements of real estate you know you'll notice like in the first season greg it's very focused in the perspective of different elements like seller education series listing series like just very practical episodes then we started to fold a few interviews into it of recent where you know we're trying to interview the people that we we know that are the better real estate people out there that have different practices you know they're not a lot of them are incredibly high performers but there's sure. a lot of them that have got some really distinct practices out there but again we look at trying to provide practical that you can implement in your business today tomorrow i'm um, very script based very 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 practical on this um and then then we have the the other element of it that you know, that I've introduced, you know, we have a, a growth coach that comes in, Julia Gentry, who's my personal coach as well. And we sort of do a little bit of coaching around how to have a growth mindset. Um, and then, you know, we do interviews with individual agents. Um, and then we try and mix it up a little bit into the, into the mortgage world for updates there. We've got a few commercial real estate agents that we talk to as well. Um, but then most of the time, you know, keeping it very practical in the sense of this is the way that we should operate in an individual situation. Like my last episode on the practical standpoint was about a communication calendar that you set at the very beginning of a listing because missed expectations around this is one of the biggest things that we do when we survey sellers that have been with our network is that they're like, mm, communication wasn't enough. And then you check in with the agent. They're like, I communicated with them once a week. And I'm like, did you ever tell them that in the beginning? And they're like, no. I'm like, well, maybe they would have communicated that they want to be communicated once every couple of days. So doing that and making sure that there's no missed expectation was one of those sessions. Um, you know, like just little things like that, I guess. You know, realistically, um, content is the, is the way of the world at this point. It provides us with more content. Um, the other thing that I really need is I really need to keep myself into the trenches of real estate because I need to keep my brain active um, mm -hmm. in that side of it because I'm not out there listing and selling real estate anymore. You right. know, I'm not in those living rooms. I really need to hear what's going on in those living rooms. I need to interact with what's going on in those living rooms because, you know, the one thing that I'm always conscious of is the fact of, you know, like the, you know, is how separated I am from the real thing that people do in the real estate community every day. As a CEO, I want to be connected. And it's probably my biggest downside. I've spoken about this with many people about my growth. And they say that I'm I'm too good at real estate in order to actually be a good CEO um, because I really want to get I, I stay in that practitioner element. Mm -hmm. I draw so many things to the to the to the parallel of doing a deal or you know, educating someone or whatever it may be is that, you know, it, it could stand in the way of what where I want to go, but I don't want to miss that. I don't want to lose that skill set ever. 
and I don't want to lose that that element. So again, with all due respect, if you want to listen, listen, but it's more for me than this for anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Ben, I, I feel the same way. Everybody knows that with Real Estate Titans. I learned so much from every single conversation. You get to meet incredible people. And again, for anybody who's tuning into it, they can learn and grow with us. And, and I think that's what's a beautiful thing. But yeah, selfishly, being a podcast host is one of the best things. I, I mean, again, anybody thinking about starting a podcast, uh, hunker down, think about long commitments. Uh, and, and make sure that you're passionate about it, because otherwise, what are you doing it for? Most people aren't tuning in. There's so many competitions out there, um, so many different podcasts and, and things to consume. But what I would do is I'd put my stamp of approval on Ben and Rethink Real Estate. Please subscribe. Join this man on his journey in addition to Ben. I We've been talking, and I know you and I can go and go and go. This is incredible to me. Uh, I can't thank you enough for just all the advice and the information and your journey and your life and perspective to give out to everybody. Uh, is there anything you want to close it, it up with, Ben, before we wrap everything up today? No, I don't think so. I think that, you know, it's been good. You know, it's, it's a, I find it, I find it an interesting thing to reflect on where we've been and where we're going. Um, and I'm going to continue to strive in order to have a bigger vision every single day for what we're doing. Um, if anybody's intrigued, please reach out. Um, but Greg, thank you for all you do for the real estate community as well. We're on the front lines, man. I appreciate it, Ben. Hey, we all got to stick together. I think that's the important thing. So uh, I can't thank you enough, my friend. I do have to dub you an official real estate titan. That yeah. is a badge of honor you wear for life. It's in your heart. There's no trophies or plaques, as I say, but it is yours in your heart, Ben. So thank you so much, my friend. Uh, thank you, everybody. As always, your time, attention, your love and support here with Real Estate Titans. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to subscribe, to look at our YouTube channel and take a listen on any of your favorite audio channels. I do have to give our sponsor a quick shout out, Lionbolt media. If you are a real estate professional looking to grow and scale your real estate business dramatically with leading edge digital marketing, visit lionboltmedia.com. Now we're live here on Titans every Tuesday afternoon, a different Titan, a different location. Catch everybody on the next live episode of Real Estate Titans. Take care. Thanks, Ben.